Okay, Joshua chapter 10, are you there? We took on the first handful of verses last week, but for context, we better read them so I'm not just sort of pulling something out. Uh, Take a look at it again. We are roughly 1400 years B.C. We are Joshua's taking the taking the second generation now that has been out of Egypt, taking them into the promised land. And as he does, God's got a plan. And the plan is to remove these incumbents to give them the land that God had promised them well over 400 years ago. As a matter of fact, four generations beyond that. So uh, having said that, we're uh, we're looking here at uh, Joshua 10 one and it says this. Look at it with me. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done with Jericho and its kings, or its king, and so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Choham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Yarmut, Yapfia, king of Yachish, and Devir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and all the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, that's the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Yachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, and here's our hinge on all of tonight, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Therefore Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Huron, and struck them down as far as Ezekah and Machedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Zekah, and they died, which would happen if large hailstones fell on you. There were, not, there were more who died from the hailstones than from the children of Israel killed with the sword. That's where we ended last week. And I, again, I want to kind of bring out a couple of things and we'll pray as we get ready for our, the remainder of the text. God has now given this promise, and that's what we're going to hinge on today. But I remind you, Israel's been called to sort of take and claim this land. It is being, the current incumbents are being evicted. As they've taken on, then it's one of its major cities, that is Yeriko. It then went and found itself fighting against Ai, the one battle that's ever lost anything as far as people, and then gathered, regathered, and we talked about that in time past. And then from that, as the momentum is gathering, as we see here, like one of the royal cities, great mighty men, that's very big, scary looking men, are all, you know, in essence, it's a city of sort of like giant ninjas is the idea. And, and what happens here is that these guys had sought and they, through deception, made a covenant with Israel with the idea that Israel would not kill them. But what they realized then is they're in league. 
So now you have sort of these giants that have joined Israel to fight with Israel against the rest. Now, the king of the south in the hills, starting in notice, it seems to be head by a man named Edonizedek, which means the Lord or master of my righteousness, gathers the rest of these kings in his area. And of course, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make a point, right? He's trying to say, look, at if we take down, and you can almost hear him like, hey, listen, if we take down, you know, the guys of Gibbon, <coughs> nobody else is going to join them. And that's the idea here. Because you kind of get the idea that if Gibbon is so big and scary, and they're so noteworthy, and they've made allegiance with Israel, well, then you would expect everybody else around them to do the same. Well, this Adonizedek has no interest in that. What he wants to do is he figures if he could take down Gibbon, well, then nobody else is going to do so. The interesting thing is that though they're all gathering together to fight, God's already called them to fight him anyways. This is just, if you will, God expediting the deal. Now, these guys that have been gathered together to do so, and it's important to note again that these names, they were these places, Hevron, Yermuth, Yachish, Yeglon, and probably for the most part, unless you're even a bit of a Bible scholar, probably most of those places don't mean anything to you. I mean, I don't know how many of you, well, I know a couple of you have been to Israel because you've been there with me, and we could kind of go, okay, well, we kind of have an idea where Hebron is, or we, we certainly know where Jerusalem is. Uh, but, but understand, in each one of these places, the names are listed in their Hebrew. And that is important, and God doesn't have to say that. He could have just said five kings from five southern areas gathered together to fight against Israel, but God took the mention and the liberty of making sure we got what they were. And again, it's important to note, again, the first one, if this whole thing's led by a guy, that means the master of my righteousness. Now, a beautiful name as long as it's the right righteousness. But what we find is that this battle is a battle for taking territory. Now that we're in the promised land, that is territory God wants for each of us, but somebody is already there. Something is already there. And what God wants is that the old has to be evicted if the new is going to take its place. And it starts with that. All other religions in the world outside of Christianity is all about you making yourself right. It's about you fasting and praying and taking your trips and making your allegiances and claim your things and giving and all of the things that are required in one way or another. And maybe if you pray enough and give enough and do enough and sing enough and whatever enough, maybe in the end of it all, it will be acceptable. And that's your own righteousness. That's your works. Ironic, such a person could look at you as a Christian and call you self-righteous, and we are the only not self-righteous people on the planet. I myself didn't make me right. How about you? Jesus made me right. I'm Jesus righteous. I'm like, wow, you fasted and prayed and gave your money and did your things, and in all of that, you're self-righteous. That's the crazy part about this. And if we are not willing to claim Christ's righteousness, well, then the rest of these things will just be people, if you will, territory that's already been occupied, so why even give it up? The second, then, as we see it listed here in verse 5, is Hebron. Hebron means fellowship. And it is important to note again that we already have fellowship before we came to Christ. We just have it over sin. Every human being on the planet has that in common. We may not have the same sins in common, but we have sin in common. We are natural sinners. We do that without thinking. Some of us are extremely gifted sinners. Some of us are excelling at that. Some of us people could write books about how to sin. That's not to brag about. And if we do not develop a new fellowship, we'll reside to the old one, the incumbent fellowship of sin. You ever watch that? Christians. 
They seem like they love God, but you put them together and all there is is trouble. And you don't get it. He seems to love God. She seems to love God. But when you put them together, they're a terrible couple. Not just because of their personalities, but they keep falling into sin. Until we develop a new fellowship. But we can't do that unless we willingly recognize that the old type of fellowship needs to be evicted. And that's what's taking place here. And then the second one of these things then is elevation. This particular term as we see here is yarmut. Again, we kind of look and even to this day, scholars are still arguing over where places like this are. But the place means proper rising up, elevating. What things do we elevate? What things do we hold important? Scripture makes clear that the Bible says that what man exalts is an abomination to God. That's a heavy statement. And until we're willing to actually see that the things that we lift up and call important and are adulating and worship here on earth are foolish, well, to be honest, we'll never really lift up what we should and who we should. And from that we get this third one here, this, this term, lachish. And lachish, in essence, means victory or challenge, the whole idea of overcoming. And it is important to recognize with this, then, if we really want to see proper victory... We have to start evicting what we thought was victory before we came to Christ. Do you remember when winning a fight was all that mattered? When, whether that was an argument or whether that was a physical conflict. One way or the other, we just knew that winning was all, it was everything. We had in Chicago where I was born, and I can't say raised because I really never grew up there, but we used to have a sort of place where kind of punk kids hung out, you know. They call them social centers or whatever. And then they always thought that this was, you know, this got us off the streets. But all it did was give us a place to actually start building gangs. But anyways, but, but, but they had a rule there. And for whatever reason, I, I was not the kind of kid that was sort of Mr. Pleasant. And I used to get in a lot of fights. And they had this rule. And the rule was that if you get in a fight, the loser gets to stay at the, the club. You can come back, but the winner never gets to come back again. So then you were stuck. Did you really like the club well enough? Or were you willing to side with your pride? Needless to say, most of us, when you got a fight, we didn't care about the club anymore. And the idea, of course, is victory. And, and the problem is, is we can do it as Christians, too. You know this. We get into, we're, we're speaking with someone and they're saying something that's completely nonsense. And we're trying to address them and speak to them. But as we start to kind of get into it, we get so much into trying to win the argument that we actually stop being concerned about the person and about what really the need is. And you can see this a lot in areas like the pro-life movement, where certainly the idea of trying to help children, you know, that's, that's certainly a very, very noble cause. But man, if you're not willing to reach out to the girl, what in the world are we doing? And if you're so busy trying to save the baby that you don't mind killing the mother... That to me sounds so hypocritical. But victory in the sight of Christ is actually seeing a soul come to him. It tells us that he who wins souls is wise. And the idea is that we, want to, we don't want them to think we're the victor. The point is, is we want them to have the victory. And the victory is in Christ. I can win an argument and they don't receive Jesus and feel like I won something. That's an old type of victory. But the moment that I realize what I want is for you to receive Jesus, well, then everything changes. And now what I want, because of that, I will willingly lose if that's what it takes for you to come to Christ. Well, there's the point. And then comes the last one, this aspect of total sacrifice, this thing of Eglon, the idea of a circle or that of a calf, and the idea of that is a place of great or total sacrifice. And again, if Christ isn't my total sacrifice, if Christ isn't my victory, if Christ isn't what I elevate and Christ isn't my fellowship, then I'll recede to the old. I'll concede back. So pray with me as we prepare now.
to see the rest of the chapter. Lord, please, as we now seek you in your word, cause your scripture to burst open and come alive. Lord, I know there's so much to be said. Lord, chisel off the parts that are irrelevant and unnecessary. And Lord, take that which exactly what you want and just burn it into our hearts, God, in such a way that we would be transformed, we would be revolutionized, that we would be set on fire in the best of ways for you. Lord, to burn bright and to be the light you call us to be to this otherwise dark world. And God, I just pray that we would have so much fun in your scripture, that you'd pour forth your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and unplug our ears and open our hearts. And Lord, in that, captivate us and color in the black and white. And may we just get it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would at any, again, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and let the Bible be your authority. Test everything you hear, not just what I say, everything by the word of God. And not just a little verse here or there, but the whole counsel of God. Now, here's our point in all of this. God now is challenging these guys. I mean, Joshua seeks the Lord because these guys are coming now, and it's a full frontal assault. And as it's a full frontal assault, Joshua knows that if he's going to join into this battle, it's all in or it's all out warfare. In this all in, these kings have gathered together and it is the first time now that the kings have made, if you will, an offensive attack on Joshua. Up to this point, everything has been Joshua going in, jumping forward. Now he realizes either he's going to run to the fray or the fray is going to run to him. And as it's the case, God speaks to him and gives him direction. And this is what he says again. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, first of all, don't fear them. And by the way, probably you're aware of the fact that most of the time when the Lord says don't fear, literally it's stop fearing. The idea is that there is a fear there, and it's a fear among the camp, and God says, stop fearing. Don't even be afraid. Now, look, we've taken on this city, we've taken on that city, but now five cities have gathered together, and we may not be aware of them. I mean, understand in a situation like this, it, it's sort of like, you know, okay, you got in a fight with some guy, and then you got in a fight with another guy, and someone said, well, I just want you to know this guy, and this guy, and this guy, and this guy, and this guy, that you've never heard of, are all gathering together, and they want to fight you at the same time. Now, you probably don't envision, like, five, like, leprechauns coming at you. You know, you, you probably assume they're going to be big guys. The reason I say that is, is that when Joshua is going to fight into this battle now, when they say five cities have joined together, it isn't like he's done a tremendous amount of territorial research. All he knows is five cities have joined together to fight him now. And so God says, don't fear. This is why, because I've already delivered them into your hand. It's a done deal. But God could have stopped there, but he didn't. He said, not a man of them shall stand before you. And I want you to recognize what God promised here was more than just victory. What God promised them was total victory. And you probably know there's a big difference. I mean, in the lives that we live, we are sometimes just happy to kind of make it through unscathed. Now, we read the verses and it becomes more damning. But, I mean, if you've ever fought, and I kind of fought competitively, so there was a time where I kind of recognized there's a difference where you make it all of the rounds and they're counting points. And at that, there's always insurity. No matter how many, you know, kicks or punches you think you've landed, in the end of it all, it's not about whether you did, it's whether they saw it and whether they collected the right amount of points. And even a guy that really looks like the obvious favorite sometimes really doesn't wind up winning. In a case like that, maybe in the end of it, you're like, whew, okay, we made it. We made it through that. And it's another thing when the opponent gets knocked out. When the opponent gets knocked out, there's no question who won. And it's even worse than that for us. Because when we read in the book of Romans is that we are not just conquerors, right? We're 
more than conquerors. What the heck is that? How could you be more than a conqueror? Well, here's the difference. You showed up in the ring, and when you showed up in the ring, when the guy came to go in the ring, he fell down and died of a heart attack before he got in the ring. At that point, you already won the battle before it started. And what we find is that this is before the battle has started, and the Lord has already said, you've already won. And if you've already won, you're not actually going there to go for most of this. It's not about hand-to-hand combat. There will be battle. But most of it's to collect the spoil. There's the crazy part about it. But listen what God said. I'm not just giving you victory. Not a single guy is going to stand in this. I want to give you total and proper and right fellowship. I want to give you total and proper right views of priorities. I want to give you total and proper right intimacy with me and fruitfulness. I want to give you total and right peace. I mean, I want to give you those things that I promised you when I said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God says, listen, that's not fruits. That's one fruit because all of them are supposed to bear forth in your life. Expect this. Expect not just life, but expect abundant life. And that's a really different thing. Not just, well, I was kind of like a robot, and now I'm like a painted robot. I'm a cooler robot than I was before. No, you're alive now. And as you're alive, this is a radically different thing. So the question is, what happens when you actually realize that? The temptation is to fight only as much as the battle comes to you. But that's not what we're going to see here with Joshua. Clearly, since creation... One of the greatest miracles takes place in Joshua 10. And for the most part, it lies kind of nestled under the blankets of a book that most people don't even spend much time reading. Listen to what it says. Look at it with me. First of all, we recognize that God was the one who brought the greater victory, of course, because we read that of all of the things, God started to stone them with hailstones. He stoned them from heaven, if you will, in verse 11. As he stones them from heaven, and again, I remind you in Exodus 9 where we see something like hail. It was the first of the plagues. It was the seventh of ten. But the first plague where Pharaoh actually admits that he was wrong. And here, understand, as Israel is going to the battle, imagine what it would be like going to battle and watching the enemy come at you. And then God goes, boom! And everyone just starts getting pelted with us. First of all, I wouldn't run any farther in, would you? And I just kind of watched as they all kind of fell until the stone stopped. And you realize just a moment ago I was shaking in my boots or sandals. And then I look and now I realize, oh my goodness, what was I so freaked out by? If this is really what I'm looking at. But again, I would imagine in a moment like that, if I were Joshua, and prayerfully if you were as well, I would hear that promise again. God said, not a man is going to stand against you here. You've got total and absolute victory in this. So it happened, verse 11, as they fled Israel and were on the descent to Beth Horan, which, by the way, means house of hollowness, not hollow like holy, but hollow like emptiness, that the Lord cast on large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more that died from the hailstones than children of Israel killed with the sword. Now, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped. And I know you're thinking, oh, Pastor Tony, really? Yes, really. 
And here's the fun part. We could spend four hours going to really fun scientific things. And I could probably try to do it in a way that every one of you goes, I didn't get any of that, but that guy's probably smart. And then I don't actually have to be smart. I just have to memorize a few terms and, and maybe take a quote from some guy that actually really is smart. But, but understanding all of this, if you get past the first verse in Scripture, the rest of it actually should be simple. The first verse in Scripture says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God created it, he could do whatever he wants with it. And people go, oh, and it's like, don't you think it's funny when some proud scientist somewhere actually thinks that they outsmarted God? I can't wait to be up in heaven someday and watch God roll film on some of that. Some guy goes, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't believe in you because I was too smart. And God's like, this, this is smart? Let's look at it together, shall we? Well, if God stopped things, first of all, we all know that the sun doesn't move, the earth moves. Well, actually, you're probably aware of the fact that both of them do. Though the earth revolves around the sun, we're aware of that. Our entire galaxy is on the move. And the Milky Way galaxy is actually in its own movement. And the reason I say that is, is that there's all kinds of stuff happening, much more than just simply an earth standstill. The earth, I'm sorry, the the sun standstill and everything revolves around it. We're aware that in our galaxy, and I don't know if you know this, 99% of all of the mass of our universe is the sun. Are you aware of that? Kind of a fun thought. But when we're kind of looking, when we look and we say, for instance, when the sun, you know, this morning, there's a moment, we call it the sunrise. Obviously, it's taken place. Now we had a sunset. But aren't we civilized people who know better? The sun did not rise. The earth turned. But that sounds a little less fun. And it's a lot longer to say, especially when you're getting up and haven't had your coffee yet. We're intelligent people. We say that. But when you're standing and looking at the sun, it looks like it's moving. So it's one thing to be able to say quietly. And maybe you'd be like this, too. I probably would. That, you know, unless we had that kind of faith, be able to say, sun, stone, stone, sky. But it says that Joshua said it in front of all of Israel, which means if it doesn't happen, Joshua really looks like an idiot. And you know that because is there anyone in this room other than, well, actually, I have two. Is there anyone in this room that hasn't dealt with that? Like the Lord says something and you're like, but if I pray that out loud, loud enough, someone's going to think I'm an imbecile if God doesn't step it up. But God was the one who told you to pray it in the first place. Now, I'm not telling you to, you know, you just tell God what to do and he's going to follow you because that's that doesn't make him Lord. What I'm saying was when God puts something in your heart, just believe it. Now, why in the world would Joshua say this? I mean, of all the places, do you realize people are like, well, you understand gravity is all part of the Earth's rotation. And if the Earth stopped rotating and the sun actually stood still, well, clearly in such a moment like that, everything would fly off the Earth, including us and all of that. Well, that would be if you tried to stop the Earth. But when God does it, I think he's thought everything through on how to make sure it happens properly. And the reason that I'm not actually spending more time explaining it, to be honest, is is that faith puts us in a greater state of wonder than explanation. How did God do it? Why does it matter how God did it? The important thing is, God did it. And I really do believe what the Lord is really looking for are people that are not checking out our brains, but rather recognizing that faith is going to always be greater than our understanding. And man says, well, I just need to understand. And I'd say, why? Did God do it or not? Not unless I understand it. Actually, it doesn't work like that. Imagine you saying, I, this plane certainly will not fly until I understand all of the laws of aerodynamics. It's going to fly once it takes off one way or another. 
And the reason I say that is Joshua is saying something that took that has never been said before, never been said since that we're aware of. I mean, he doesn't get any precedent of, oh, these are the sun stand still guys. And he became he joined part of that club. He's saying something that's never happened before. So why in the world would he say it? Let me remind you, God gave him a promise. And here's the promise. No one's going to stand before you. You're going to take it all down. And there becomes our problem. See, the problem is, is that there aren't enough of us out there, and I'm including myself. There's not enough of me in me, the part of me that actually says, God, if you gave me such a promise, I should go for it with everything. And not just this kind of needed, very sort of super cautious. Now look, there is a definite need for caution when it comes to living life, especially in a city like this. But when God says do something, when he makes it clear, we really need to put all of it in it. I mean, having coached, one of the things you see that could be the most frustrating are not the people who have the least amount of talent, but rather the people who have the most amount of talent. Because often those are the guys who have never really tried that hard, and they were still naturally better than most. And you watch them, and you're like, man, I wonder what it would be like if you really gave everything, what this would look like. And yet, what God has given you in spiritual giftings, in anointing, What God has given you by spiritual and doing because of his great love for you, having said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later, and the new life he has given you now, what he has given you is to be fully latched onto and gone for. Because I guarantee you, when you stand before God, you won't have time anymore to do the things that you could do now. Me too, by the way. There will be no more Bible studies for me to have, no more people to evangelize. You can't evangelize in heaven. They've all heard it and they've said yes. And Joshua recognized that God has given him a promise. And because of that, Joshua wants to see that victory. And maybe that's where we start this. Do we really have that kind of hunger for that kind of victory? Or, and I'll be honest. In our society here in England, in London even more specifically, we're kind of socially communist. We really don't want to stand out. Everything's kind of, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just trying to be observant, that I recognize the idea of it is even being outstanding in a good way can be a bad thing. The idea is, oh, I don't want to be embarrassed enough people look at me, because we've all learned that there are certain looks you get. You know, there's the look that people give when they're disapproving of you on a bus because your headphones are too loud or the, the, the look because for whatever reason, we looking is part of our arsenal now, right? We just, mm, mm, and you kind of know. And it all depends. If you're like from more of a Jamaican culture, that usually comes with a little head bob and, mm, or a little noise, mm, right? I mean, if we're a little bit more demonstrative, we're a little bit more quiet and we really want to underline it, we'll go, And, of course, that just leaves the person you're looking at to think of a thousand things you're thinking. So we don't want people looking at us. Because if we have people looking at us, they're probably thinking those things. And then we come to a church where we realize that maybe we could just do the same thing. We try to figure out what the norm is and just kind of get there, float a little bit below the surface so we don't stand out. And we die quietly together not making any ripples, not denting the status quo, and everything's quiet, and we're okay, because we're numb. We're all kind of cool little cadavers. Instead of being alive and seeing the world changed. 
And for that to happen, there's got to be a part of us that is passionate. And I'm not talking about you being out of your own. I mean, God's given us all however your passion looks. It might be very different from mine. But the bottom line is, I mean, you give Daniel like four energy drinks, he's still not going to be this. He's going to be funny, but he's not going to be this. But for every one of us, we know what it's like to have walked off and go, okay, did I spend it all on the field is the idea. Because if I didn't, when I get off the field, I'm not going to get to go back on. So I want to do it now. And then I start looking at some things in Scripture about what it would be like when we don't. So look, at I'm going to flip to a couple places and then we'll go. And to be honest, the rest of the text just kind of goes quick because what happens is Joshua goes to this place and he wins. Then he goes to the next place and he wins. He goes to the next place and he wins. That's what I would expect for a guy that's claiming the victory that God has promised. So if you're in the book of Joshua, go to the next book over. That's the book of Judges. And this could be easy to miss, but what they're doing at the beginning of the book of Judges is God is kind of giving an overview of the current state of the union. He's actually showing what Israel's look like. Now understand, in between the moment we're at in Joshua 10 and the end of the book of Joshua, basically Israel fights its battles, claims its land as much as they want to. Or probably actually less or more than they want to, but claim it their land. And so what we're having now is we realize is that not all of the land has really been conquered, though it was supposed to be. Not all of the enemies have been defeated, though they're supposed to have been. And as a result of that, this is what we read in Judges 1, starting in verse 27. However, Menashe did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or to Anach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Do you see that term at the end there? They were determined. Why didn't Israel drive them out? Because it seemed to me that these guys were more committed to staying than we were of removing them. Verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute. They did not completely drive them out. Verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab, of Achzib. Aren't you thankful I'm reading these and not you? Of Helba. Who wants to live in Helba? Afik or Rechab. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bet Anach, Amak. But they dwelt among the Canaanites in the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anach were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. For they did not allow them to come down into the valley. Now, now, this is clearly just kind of kind of going, let me just kind of show you this state at the moment. There's some guys over here. There's some guys over here. There's some guys over here. They shouldn't be there, but they're there still. You get that? But God didn't have to list them in this order. But he chose to list them in this order. And again, I look at this, and I'm just the kind of person that goes, why? Now, take a look at your own life for a second, as I take a look at mine. If I were to look at my life like land, 
Are there areas to this moment that I'm still giving ground to something that shouldn't be there anymore? Now that I belong to Jesus, now that I'm a new creation in Him, are there territories that I'm like, you know, well, I, I, if I were really full on like I really know I should be, that wouldn't be there at all. Now, I'm not talking about just like, I have. I, every once in a while I get surprised because some sin comes at me and I actually do something stupid. And then again, that's still not good either. But what I'm saying is those areas where it's become something that's just, it's just part of who your life is still. Look at this process with me, though. In Joshua chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Judges chapter 1, verse 27, it said, first of all, that there were these groups of people and they didn't leave because, again, they were determined to dwell in the land. So what became, it was a battle not of might, not a battle of strength, but a battle, to be honest, of conviction. We kind of looked and said, you know, you need to get out. And they're like, no. And you're like, okay, well, I'm glad we had that talk. And that was the end of it. Sometimes you see this, by the way, in one of those really bad relationships. Where you kind of know that something needs to happen and it's kind of, kind of grave. Like this needs to get, you need to get out. This needs to be over. We really can't do this anymore. And what happens is you kind of, and, and we, because we're kind of, we try to be subtle, right? And so we try to say as least amount as possible with the most amount of meaning. And so we say something like, well, you know, it might be good. And, you know, and so it almost sounds like we're wishy-washy. So the person that doesn't want out of the relationship or whatever kind of plays into it and goes, oh, well, yeah, I, I can see what you, might, you mean by that. Maybe we should think about that while we continue the relationship. And you kind of know where you get put in that awkward position where sooner or later you kind of just have to get tight and go, this is done. What happens if we don't? Well, look at what happens. First of all, they were of greater conviction than we were. So we didn't drive them out. Verse 29, notice the next step. That the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Notice again in verse 30, the Canaanites dwelt among them. Did you see that? In both cases now, it went from just, they were, they were determined to stay to, they kind of lived. Now, they were still the foreigners, but we were permitting them to stay there. It was still our land, and this is where we get this kind of dece this deceived feeling of security because it's still my, it's my life. And because it's my life, I'm going to let this little stuff kind of just stay there. And because it's going to stay there, I'm cool. Are you following me? Something shifts, though. Notice in verse 32. It tells us in verse 31, Asher, of course, didn't drive out their people either. But it says, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Verse 33 when it talks about Naphtali, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Did you see the shift? See, this is the way it started. It started with this. I want you out. And they're like, yeah, but... Okay, never mind. I don't want this confrontation. I don't like this kind of awkwardness. I'm going to kind of back off and just pray for, I don't know, that you get hit by a bus or you just get sick and you can't be, whatever. You know, we do like a junior high breakup or we just don't call each other anymore. It just doesn't work. And what happens is I'm just trying to make it subtle, but it's not. And then what happens is, well, okay, I'll let you stay. And let me, let's put it this way. Let's say that Daniel and his brother have an apartment. And as they have an apartment, things are cool. They've got it decorated the way they want. Starship Enterprise is hanging from the ceiling. Star Wars memorabilia all the way around. All of the action figures in their boxes, careful and safe. Endless amounts of DVDs, as you might imagine. Everything from Marvel. 
And they take in a third guy. And we'll just call him Blugo. Just hypothetically. And Blugo comes in, but Blugo's a very different character from them. What Blugo does is, is Blugo decides that, first of all, he really is kind of not into this whole Star Wars thing or all of that. And so what Blugo does is he kind of tears all of that down, but he really likes, like, girls from, like, Brazil. So he starts, or Italian, we better make it safer. Let's just say Italian. And so he starts putting up posters of, you know, Viva Italy, you know, uh, Basta da Pasta. And they're all just kind of all over the walls. And Daniel and his brother are a little tweaked by that because this isn't what they wanted. And he removes all of those DVDs. They're like, these are dumb DVDs. I really like DVDs about people playing chess, you know. And so that's all there is. And Daniel's like, there's no action in that. But, but Blue goes just like, hey, it's my house too. So they finally have to have a, they have to have a sort of sit down. And as they have this sit down, they have this confrontation. And they're like, Blue Go, things aren't really working out here, you know. And Blue Go responds with, you're right. You know, I think you guys need to change some things still. You know, love being here. This is so great. Here's my rent for the next three months. And you're like, oh, uh, okay. Well, thanks. And then they sit and they have their talk. Boy, that didn't turn out like we hoped it would. And then, of course, Blugo's still living among them, but something starts to change because at this point, because they haven't stood their ground, Blugo starts to take over. Now, all of a sudden, the house starts really looking like Blugo. So at this point now, Blugo decides that he really loves drinking like Strongbow or something. And though Daniel and his brother wouldn't dare do that, now the refrigerator is like three shelves of Strongbow, and then there's like one shelf with like pizza for Daniel and his brother. And what's happening is that the house is becoming increasingly and increasingly more blue Are you following me on this? Some of you, to be honest, I think this is kind of hitting home in your own life. But notice that's not the end of this either. So what happens is it says, okay, we, they went from him dwelling among their place to them dwelling kind of in his place. And the place hasn't changed. That's just the digression. But then notice what happens in verse 34. The Amorites forced the Dan, forced the tribe of Dan, Oh, funny, like Dan. No. See, it's working out. Into the mountains. They would not allow them to come down the valley. So what happens ultimately? Blue goes so takes over the place that all that's left is Dan and his brother are shoved in their room and they have their tiny little room where they spend together while the rest of the place is basically now Blue goes. Now, can we agree that that's a really sad story? Though it's a very sad story, it's an extremely common story story among Christians. We let a little bit in. And we let a little bit in. Come on, come on. I don't want to look like I'm judgmental. I don't want to look like, you know, whatever. So we kind of start doing this compromise. We know this should be out of our life. We know this does not any way reconcile. No, I'm not just talking about a person that's a Christian. I'm talking about a person that wants to be more like Jesus. There's a difference. You're aware of that, right? And you're like, well, the Christian world, we kind of do this, and we do that, and we do that, and that's kind of acceptable. But what if, does it make you anything more like Jesus? And you find these people, they were raised kind of in a very kind of quiet home, and they've been relatively kind of very, you know, well-demure and, and very kind of well-maintained. And all of a sudden, they go to some form of church, and now it's like, to be cool, they've got to go into all these brand new areas, but none of them have anything to do with Jesus anymore. And they're getting into these crazy things they would have never done before. And they're like, now all of a sudden, this guy's drunk, and now all of a sudden, this girl's pregnant, and then all of a sudden, church! 
Because that's what Christians do. That is not what Christians do. Christians, if we really want to become like Christ, which is what the term means, means we want to get rid of everything that doesn't look like Him and look forward to the things that do look like Him. That's very different. And what we have in this, and let me just ask, and I'm asking myself as we do this, is the steps I'm taking right now, are the steps I'm taking right now, are they steps that make me more like Jesus? Are they just making me more like the world so I can become more friends with both now and I'm going to be like a double agent? And what happens is in the story here, if they had gone for it with everything, they would have never had this problem. Dan would have been able to live where he wanted. But unfortunately, that's not what we have here. A couple other quick things to kind of give you an idea of that. Uh, there's a story in Second Kings for what it's worth in chapter 13. If you're the kind that's quick, go ahead and turn there. 2 Kings 13. There's a prophet, and his name is Elishama. They're much easier in the Hebrew. We say Elijah, Elisha, and you're like, do you, do you gotta go, which one was that again? But in the Hebrew, the first guy's name is Eliyahu, and the second guy's name is Elishama. It's a lot simpler. Well, this is guy number two, Elishama, which literally means the Lord hears. It tells us in verse 14 this. Elisha, or Elishama, had become sick with an illness of which he would die. Even prophets get illness, by the way. Then Yoash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face. That would be awkward, we all can agree. And said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, well, shoot. So he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Literally, till you have destroyed. You kind of get the idea there. That's full on. You get it? Don't stop until you're, till it's done. Verse 18. So he said, okay, now take the arrows. So he took, so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Now, Hebrew verb tenses, by the way, it's important to recognize, though they're really only this of perfect and imperfect, it's either done or it isn't, there are all these inflections and the idea of things like, for instance, do you do it to yourself? Do you do it to others? Does it happen to you? And then there's this intensive, like, hypopothal, uh, where it's like, do it, really do it. And that's the term that's being used here. When he says strike the ground, he's not going, yeah, just hit the ground. He's going, hit the ground! So he struck three times and he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and he said, you should have struck it like five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria until you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died. That was, can you imagine that's the last word you get? You know, you really could have done that better. As a result of that, you're really not going to have the victory you should. <clears throat> like, wow. Guess that's going to stick in my head. Then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands of Moab then invaded the land in the spring of the year. Now, here's the point of it. Elisha says, first of all, do you notice the promise came first? 
So Elisha says, he says, come here for a second. He says, King, come here for a second. Grab the bow. All right, grab the bow. And you're probably a righty, so you're going to have to go yeah, that way. So he goes, I grab it. And he's, he's doing it with him. And he's pulling it back with him. And he goes, now look with me. Yeah, don't, don't you get hit in the face. Like, right? And then he lets it go. And he shoots it out the window. And he goes, do you see what just happened? He goes, that is victory. That's Syria over there. And you shooting that because God wants to give you total victory in this area. He goes, now take the rest of those arrows and hit the ground with them. And the king goes, okay. Elijah was like, wow, you're going to kill them with apathy. Great job. I said, where's your passions in that victory? I already promised you victory. I just promised you victory. Shouldn't that stir your soul? Shouldn't that make you go, yes? Because, man, you just like, you just did what was asked, and that's it. You didn't really go for it. Hey, now look, if there are some people in the world, to be honest, they do what's asked, and that's kind of life for them, but that's not mine, and I guarantee you, most of you, if not all of you here, that's not yours either. You kind of know when it's like God says jump, and you're just going, as long as I leave the ground, we're cool. Me, it's like, I, want to, I wonder how, if God said jump, I wonder how high I'm going to go with this. And he's looking, he's going, what, what, what are you doing? Back in our text, we have somebody who jumps high. We have somebody that at the promise of victory is going to do Listen, is there an area of your life right now you feel there's victory? Is there an area of your life you feel there's defeat? But let me ask you, is there defeat or is there compromise? I mean, are you letting something live in your town that really doesn't belong there? And you're giving it the room because really, to be honest, you just, you just don't want to make waves. Well, take a look at what Joshua does. Can you see why Joshua says to the son in front of everyone, Stop! Because we're not done with the battle yet. And I don't want the sun to go down yet until we take care of this thing. Man, what a guy. So walk through the rest of the chapter with me now. Joshua 10, and we'll close this up to pray. Verse 13 again says, So the sun stood still, the moon stopped. So the people had revenge on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Joshua? And you go, what is the book of Joshua? Well, it's a book that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a book that collected a bunch of these particular battles. It's important to recognize in that day, apparently it was accessible. Funny, by the way, they found a book in the 18th century uh, that they, uh, was a clear forgery, by the way, including the paper and the ink that were used. It hadn't been invented back when Joshua would have written this. And they said, this is the book of Joshua. It's kind of like if I give you something on computer paper. Remember, and we'll even go with the old stuff. Remember that 80s stuff with the, with the holes on the side and everything kind of looked like it came out of Jenga? Imagine I said, well, I have this ancient document. Here's the book of Joshua, but it's on that kind of computer paper. You go, get out of here. Well, that was the idea. Nonetheless, there was a book that at least in these days people could refer to called the book of Joshua. So it says, the sun stood still, the moon stopped. To the people who had revenge on their enemies, it's written in the book of Jasher. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it. Now, I bet there have been days you've lived where you felt like it was that long, but no day like it. Before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for it. You know why God listened? Because God was already fighting for him. It is important to recognize, and this, is a re- this should be revolutionary, and though it's simple, it's never about whether God is on your side. If you're actually trying to figure out whether God is on your side, I think you need to start seeing who the leader is supposed to be. It's whether I'm on his side. 
So Joshua returned and all Israel with them to the camp of Gilgal. That's our place of consecration. The five kings had hidden themselves in a cave in Makedah. And again, I remind you, Makedah means marked, like set aside. And so it was told Joshua that five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makedah. So Joshua says, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set it, uh, set, and then set men by it to guard it. So it's a, it's a cave guarded by a stone and men that are a guard. And don't, do not stay there yourselves, but pursue the enemy and attack their rear guard. Don't allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Don't let them get there. So what happened when Joshua and the children of Israel made an end slaying that very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped made it into their fortified cities? And you go, uh-oh. Has anyone ever told you this word? Strongholds. You know why you can't get that out of your life, Bruno? It's a stronghold, man. You know why that's in your life? It's a stronghold. Well, let me tell you, when God's promised you victory, no stronghold stands. All you need is Joshua to lead you in. And we're well aware that Joshua is simply the Hebrew name for Jesus. So, all the people returned to camp to Joshua and Machedah in peace. No one dared move his tongue against any of the children of Israel. And Joshua said, now let's start taking care of business. Let's finish the job. First thing we need to do is deal with the kings. So open the mouth of the cave. And bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so. Brought out the five kings to him. And again, he makes clear what the places are. Jerusalem, which, by the way, I remind you, means, if we will, pleads for peace or teaches peace. Hebron, which means fellowship. And we start walking through these things again. And he's like, you know what? You want to see true victory in all of these areas? Well, that's quite simple. First of all, you know what you need to do? You need to have the stone rolled away. There's a cave. And when the stone was rolled away, the kings go down. And can I say, doesn't that kind of make you think of anything, Christians? Like, I don't know, Matthew 28.2 or Mark 16.4 or Luke 24.2, where a stone had been rolled away. And what we saw was that Jesus was risen. I remind you, Jesus' death tells us that the life we had lived is dead. But his resurrection shows us that there's a whole new life to live now. And as we see that now, what we see is there's a resurrected life. And the resurrected life, there's a whole new peace. There's a whole new fellowship. There's a whole new set of priorities. There's a whole new set of victory. There's a whole new everything. And for that, he's going to remove what you thought was that before and replace it with himself. So, verse 24, it was the one that they brought out the kings, Joshua, that Joshua called all the men of Israel and said to the captains and the men of war who were with them, come near. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. That's a way of declaring total victory, as you're probably aware. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Often what you'll find even in Israel to this day will be statues of kings in victory. And the way they do it in the Middle East is a picture of a guy with his, ne- with his foot on their neck. You'll find that by the way of Eliyahu, that first Elijah, at the place called the place of burning, or where Joshua stood against the prophets. I'm sorry, where Eliyahu stood against the prophets of Baal. Some of you are familiar with that from the Kings 18. And they have a picture there, a statue there of him standing on one of the necks of the prophet of Baal. Joshua now says to them what God said to Joshua. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies, notice all, against whom you fight. Afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on the tree, five trees, and they were hanging on the trees. That is important because that tells us what these kings were really about. We're aware of it from Galatians 3.13, which quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 that says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. 
What Joshua tells us is that these kings, this old righteousness and this old fellowship and this old set of values and this old what I thought was victory, all of that is cursed. Why do I want to be why do I want that in my life? So at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and he took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they were hidden and laid their large stones against the cave's mouth. And they remain there until this day. It's the sixth of seven stone memorials in the book of Joshua. This one now with the kings of the south. The next one, the last one will actually be the stone of witness when Joshua says, as many of you are familiar with, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the only one left. We have the ones from the Jordan, the ones that came out of the Jordan, the ones that went into the Jordan. We have Achan, remember, who took the stuff and had to be stoned. We have the king of Ai. We have the altar stones in chapter 8, 31 and 32. And then here, and then ultimately Josh's um, final uh, vow with the people at the end of the book. So let's clean up. Verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Mechidah. I remind you, that means marked, marked off. Struck it. And it's king with the edge of the sword until he destroyed them utterly. All the people that were in it, he let none remain. There will be seven we're going to see here, by the way. That's the first of them. As he did also to the king of Echadah, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Joshua passed from Echadah and all Israel with him. Notice all Israel. This is not a, ma- a small battle. To Libna. And I remind you, that means pavement. The walking place. And they fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered that and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. They let none remain, but he did do with the king as he had done to the kings of Jericho. Let me do this. Um, Daniel, would you go ahead and put up just the map? We'll kind of make it up so that people can kind of, or Bruno, I'm sorry. Go ahead and put that up. Just so that as, we're kind of, as I'm kind of reading through this now, to end this, you could kind of see that last big tall one that we had. Uh, no, it was a bigger, longer one, taller one. Oh, nope. You're getting there. It would be the very bottom one, I imagine. And I don't know if you'll be able to see this well, but I just want to be able to give you kind of an image here. Uh, um, I think there's one more. Okay, well then give me that one. Yeah, there should have been one that shows... Oh yeah, that, that, that could, should be able to do. Um, and go ahead and zoom, is there a way to zoom in just some more in that lower portion? There we go. Okay. And what we're looking at now is, by the way, we're looking at territory. As Israel has kind of come in now, do it this way. Israel's come in. There's Jericho and Gilgal. That's where they've started. Here's Bethlehem. And this is our area that we're looking at all the way down. Can you see Gaza here? Can you see that? Same Gaza, by the way, as today. It means strong. And so basically what they're doing is they're taking on all of this land. Here's Giza, for instance. We'll see that. Lachish here. And so we'll see this is the area that they're fighting. Here's Hebron. Even to this day, so you can kind of see what we're kind of looking at. Let me read this and see if you can kind of follow along. So this is what it says. Hoham, the king of Gizar, came up to help Lachish. This is verse 33. His name again, I, remember. I should say this. Lachish means invincible. Victory is the idea. He passed from Libna and made war against it. Verse 31. He fought against it. The Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day. Struck it in all the people who were with it, with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Livna. Then verse 33, Horam, the king of Gizar, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people, and he left none remaining. That means exalted again. I remind you, the idea of there is lifted up for priority. 
Then verse 34, from Nachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him. And they encamped against it, fought against it. They took it on that day, struck it with the edge of the sword. And all the people were in it, utterly destroyed that day, according to all that they had done to Lachish. Joshua went up from Iglan and all the people with him to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, all its cities, and all the people who were with it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Iglan, but utterly destroyed it and its people who were in it. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to Debir, and they fought against it. And he took it in its king and its cities, and he struck them at the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Hivron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he had done to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, and the south of the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Joshua conquered them, from Kadesh Barnea, which, by the way, means, if you will, the sanctuary of the wanderer, which is interesting because they had been wandering for 40 years prior, and now they're finding a sanctuary or the holy place, as far as Gaza, which means strong, and all the hill country of Goshan, which means drawing near, as far as Gibeon, which means even to the hill or to the city of the hill. And all these kings in their land Joshua took at once, one time, because the Lord God of Israel brought, I'm sorry, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And this is how we ended. And we, and I would, now you could say, well, God really didn't need to do that, right? He could have just said, and he, he just fought and he won everything. But God wanted to make very clear that God took special note of every battle. And it is important to note that maybe the battles you're facing right now will be, I'm imagining, will be very different from the battles you'll face in a year from now. I remember when I looked at everything that I saw that was about to look like a mountain before me. And I realized, God, you're going to have to move these mountains. You're going to, have to, you're going to just have to see four of these things until they're rubble in front of me. But then I remember when these things that seemed so huge were taken down. I mean, there was a time when it seemed like that would never get past them. But when he took them down, I started looking and going, wow, I don't see any more mountains. But that didn't mean I didn't have more battles to fight. See, the Lord could have just blown it all up the day that I said yes to him. But if that were the case, I could only tell you how powerful God was the day I said yes to him. He's continuing to destroy things in my life that should be destroyed. Give me victory in areas of my life. And I've been walking with Jesus since 1984. And the most beautiful part about that is, I can tell you what the Lord is doing in my life today and how he's strong today. But I want to love him more I want to be more passionate and more fiery today than I've ever been. Because I know his victories better. I'm more acquainted with them. I'm more intimate, not just with the victories because of the history of these victories, but also because I know my God better and I know his might better. I should have all the more let's do this thing than I ever have. And so when I see something pop up, and whatever it is, circumstantial or relational or whatever, and you just go, whoa, that came out of nowhere. And you just kind of go, and it's amazing how God can feed the 5,000, but his disciples freak out on 4,000 after that. He did five before four. You're aware of that, right? You'd have thought he'd done four to break in, but he did five and then showed us that if God could feed 5,000, why wouldn't he feed four? And yet we kind of go, oh God, this battle, well this one's certainly bigger than, what, the mountains you've already cleared in my life? 
The beautiful part, beloved, is that what he wants for us is to totally go for it. If there was a yes in our spirit, I wonder what would happen to London. So as we pray, that's my prayer for us today. To take the arrows and bang them till they break. How's that? To shoot that thing out the window, wondering what it's going to hit. To have no other inhabitants in the land but him. And that our life would be one that is so him. That every step we take, we would look so like him. So it begs the question, of course. You know this starts with saying yes to Jesus. Accepting that gift that he paid at the cross for our sins. And handing our life to him that he would be the Lord and architect of our reinvention. So that as we walk with him, we give him permission to reinvent us. And if we do that, well then we should expect to become more Christ-like. The reason he placed his Holy Spirit in us to seal us as a guarantee is to make us more like him. Oh, beloved, tonight... Could you imagine if we're like, Lord, let my life be characterized with a yes to you. Whatever it is. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just yes. I'm going to stop trying to figure you out. I'm going to start trying to say yes more. To him. And not to the world. And that starts with that yes, Jesus. You're the Lord and Savior of my life. And it's like this. Like a husband and wife at the altar that say, I do commit to saying, I do for the rest of my life. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text. For the scriptures you've given us the privilege of walking through. Lord, thank you so much for Joshua 10. And we see again, it's either all in or all out warfare. And we really do want to see victory. And the, the crazy part is you've already promised us those victories. And Lord, I, my prayer is tonight for every one of us that we would find ourselves in this place where we really have this yes in our spirit. Whatever that is. However crazy, however whatever, and surround us with other people that so love you, that are so crazy in love with you, that we would be all more encouraged to say yes. That we would be in an environment to say yes to you. So Lord, let there be no no Lord, because those two words should never go together. It doesn't make sense. And that starts with this. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, that's my prayer now. Let those words be mine. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. Like human beings are sinners. I'm one too. And that sin makes me guilty and filthy before you. But you so love me that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me. As he died on the cross for me, my guilt was properly punished upon him. And when he died, just like Scripture promised, my debt died with him. And just like Scripture promised, he was buried and rose again on the third day and offers me a brand new life as my Lord now. And so I say yes. Let my life now be characterized by a yes to you, Jesus. As my Savior, as my ransom, and as my Lord, I say yes. And I want to follow you now. Ignite within me a fire, Lord, to live yes for you. And when you give us victory, when you give me victory and you plan that victory, may I say, Lord, to the very end, bring me that victory. Not just over part of the land, not just to get a little more space, but absolute and total victory. To be more than a conqueror like you promised. I'm yours now. Make me like you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.
And Lord, I pray for every believer, myself included, that our lives would be characterized by that, yes. Make us people, Lord, that no matter how crazy, no matter how whatever, no matter what sacrifice or price would be paid, that we would just say, yes, Lord, expectant that if you challenge us, if it's you saying yes, Lord, that it's going to be amazing. So, Lord, I commit that to you. Make our lives such a way, Lord, that the world stands up and takes notice and says, whoever they serve must be awesome. In Jesus' name. Amen.